Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. I'm so excited to have you join me today to break down and dismantle some myths that I think a lot of parents um, and culture in general have about who is at higher risks for abuse. Is it uh, boys or girls or transgender? Like we need to have these conversations because there's a lot of misinformation and myths that are still circling in communities everywhere um, and I think that that doesn't help the way that we talk about the topic and help protect our kids. So I'm really excited to open up this conversation with today's guest, Quentin Benny, and I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So just to quickly introduce for those who are not familiar with you, and I want to strongly encourage you all to follow and connect with Quentin is um, he is a celebrated wellness expert, a philanthropist, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling memoir, Strong in the Broken Places. He is the host of the new wellness and social justice podcast, Freedom to Breathe. His work has been featured in the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, Entrepreneur, Chicago Tribune, NBC News, Fox News, Mind Green Body, and others. Quentin has been recognized as one of the Black Enterprise Magazine's 100 Modern Men of Distinction and by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention for his contribution in raising awareness for mental health and suicide prevention, as well as appearing as the wellness keynote speaker for Colin Kaepernick's Know My Rights Camp. Quentin is passionate about working with youth in under-resourced communities, helping them understand their traumas and turn them into triumphs and spearheads initiatives that make yoga and mindfulness accessible among communities and populations that don't ordinarily have access to them. Having spent years practicing yoga and meditation, Quentin has found a recent passion in gardening and interior design as forms of anxiety management. So, wow, what can I say? I love everything that you're up to. I want to definitely talk about that as well. Um, and one of the reasons that I think we connected was through actually Rebecca Baruki, who is an amazing person as well. And I love that she connected us because um, we have a lot of things that um, cross over in, in terms of how we uh, want to help communities that uh, are not getting these conversations, you know, they're not getting these kinds of resources. And so um, talk to me a little bit about what you're currently up to, and then we're going to dive into some of the conversations that we've had um, behind the scenes that we want to talk about publicly. Yeah. Um, first of all, you know, huge shout out to Bex. Uh, you know, that's, that's family for me. Um, you know, so grateful that she connected us. Uh, what am I up to? Hmm. I'm up to a lot, you know, I, uh, I do a lot of consulting work um, in the nonprofit sector for uh, equity, for, um, you know, uh, racial equity, primarily, 
um, dismantling systems of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but then, you know, my passion is really into, you know, uh, fighting against this um, system of uh, food insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. The system of inequitable uh, practices against communities of color, regardless of what that looks like. Uh, so, you know, even in the bio, when you mentioned, you know, my, my recent passion for gardening, you know, and interior design as, as anxiety management, though gardening is a great form of anxiety management for me, it also provides a sustainable food source, not only for me, but for people that look like me in communities that look like, you know, the community that I came from. You know, I think back to what our reparations were supposed to be, right? We were supposed to get 40 acres and a mule so we can work the land. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, less than 10% of the black population in America owns any portion of property, you know, mm-hmm. in this country, you know, so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really working to, to, to create initiatives so that uh, individuals and communities um, that are under-resourced, um, you know, that are underfunded, um, and that don't experience, um, you know, equity in any capacity, you know, has access to, if nothing else, a sustainable nutritional-based food source. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I agree. And, and I love that, too, because you're right, when, when someone doesn't see themselves represented in any activity, they don't feel that they have, the, like, they can attain that as well, right? So I think representation in, in all of these really important areas matter. Um, And one of the things, too, that I think is also really important that helped me connect with you was the piece about anxiety management and how a lot of uh, persons like myself, who who I'm a survivor, and um, you had, you know, obviously stated that you were a survivor, and that was one of our points of connection as well, is that we struggle with anxiety because of PTSD or CPTSD and other forms of um, mental illness uh, or mental issues, I, sh- I should say. I'm not even sure how to, how to phrase it nowadays because, frankly, I just see that all encompassing as mental wellness, like mm-hmm. just the way that we have body wellness, uh, spiritual wellness, right? And, and if we're not actually dealing with the root source of that, we're not actually figuring out how to uh, get to the other side of, you know, to, to overcome those, those issues that um, plague us, I guess. Yeah. And um, so one of the things that I really loved is that you really focus on helping, you know, youth with that as well. That's one of the pieces that I think uh, we're not speaking about in us enough is how can we really uh, deal with anxiety management from a holistic perspective instead of it um, seeming like something that, you know, has to be dealt with medication, which I'm not, by the way, uh, you know, crashing on meditation, uh, on uh, medication, but I think that there's other options that are, are also uh, possible and accessible. So can you talk a little bit about um, that piece uh, of your work as well in terms of anxiety management? Because I know that especially now with COVID, those, those things have, you know, gone off the charts for a lot of people and they're not finding ways to, to cope in healthy ways. Can you talk about what you're doing in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, being diagnosed with a severe anxiety disorder um, and dealing with, you know, severe anxiety since I was 14, 
you know, um, and then being becoming addicted to the anxiety pills that I was told would help my anxiety uh, that triggered a severe bout of depression, which then culminated into two failed suicide attempts, um, you know, uh, an accidental overdose. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, as a, as a black boy in, in America, as a black man in America, you know, that the traditional medical system had failed me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had to, to then go look at and, and identify what anxiety was for me and what those root causes were for me, you know, and anxiety is literally a byproduct of human experience. You know, um, you know, it's the pervasive questioning of what if it's, you know, um, being helpless, you know, feeling helpless in moments where we should feel hopeful, right. uh, you know, constantly looking at the, the negative outcomes uh, as opposed to the positive possibilities, you know, um, and I think that comes as a result of, you know, society uh, and, and the, the rules, the standards and guidelines in which dominant culture exists. But one thing that I've also realized is that anxiety is not just a, an issue of, for people of color. Like we wear it differently, just like our traumas, but it's a human issue. And I like to tackle anxiety from the perspective of it being a human issue, mm -hmm. um, you know, and primarily, you know, working with youth, um, I think it, it provides me, a, a, as well as them, a, a great opportunity to really dive into those root causes before they become so embedded in our subconscious, right, that they are even harder to face and to right. heal from, you know. Right. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, it, it's especially being a father, you know, um, those are some of the things that I've experienced myself growing up um, and hoping and wishing that I had the level of support and the ability to have the conversations that we're having now, I think they would have helped me along my path where I would have been able to find some level of healing a lot sooner. And I wouldn't have destroyed as many relationships as I did. I wouldn't have done as much harm to myself as I did. You know, I could have lived a better quality of life earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, um, you know, uh, Jay-Z has a line where he says, you know, like I told you so drugs, Hove did that. So hopefully you wouldn't have to go through that. Right. And I think that's what, you know, like that's what inspires and motivates my work. Right. I've been through it. I know mm -hmm. what it's like to get rushed to the emergency room for an anxiety or panic attack. I know what it's like to have doctors putting all kinds of drugs and experimental things in your blood, in your, in your veins, right, to try to calm you down. I know what it's like for them to treat you like you're crazy. You know, I had a panic attack a few months ago and, and ended up, you know, getting rushed to the hospital and well, rushing myself to the hospital. And they put me in like this room. I called it the silence of the lambs room. It had paint and everything peeling off of it. They yeah. had a, a security code that you had to punch in. Like, I know what that feels like. You know what I mean? And, and I know how, you know, dehumanizing it can make you feel, right? When mm -hmm. people are treating you as if you're not normal. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to harm you. I am asking for your assistance, you know? Um, and I don't want other people to have to go through that, especially children you know, especially children of color who already have to walk into a world and into a society that's going to deem them to be less valuable because of the color of their skin. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. so, so finding other ways to deal with the, the impacts of our human, our lived human experience, um, you know, and, and finding some level of confidence uh, in, in whatever our challenges may be, 
you know, that fuels me on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to point out, I'm sure that um, because of, you know, unfortunately, because of skin color, we're being treated differently in those kinds of facilities that are supposed to be helping. And, you know, like you said, for youth to have to deal with that on top of what they're already dealing with is, is unjust. Um, and I think one of the, you know, to kind of circle back to what, why I had wanted to bring you on also was that for a lot of survivors, you know, especially if they um, maybe are still in, in that space where there is an abuser who is still, um, uh, you know, ha- is still abusing them, or if they are, it, haven't disclosed because of shame or fear, and now they're dealing with the um, after effects, right? The, the feelings of uh, anxiety that are brought on because of that and depression and all of those um, side effects really, or, or byproducts rather, um, what, what com- kind of conversations can we be having with youth, do you think, that can help them to feel safer, to have uh, more confidence in reaching out to someone for support, for help, um, particularly if it is a situation that's still ongoing? Um, what, what kind of resources do you recommend for those kinds of youth that are you know, in, those, in those situations? I mean, I, I recommend the conversations very much like the ones we're having right now. You know, I know when I was growing up, we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't talk about our traumas. We didn't talk about our experiences, right? Like we lived them, right? We lived them so much that the the harmful experiences just became a part of our normal, right? Like we had to, we had to learn how to grin and bear it, right? When people talk about, you know, this idea of survival, and how you know our brains are are wired for our survival. Um, you know, I, I think I, I don't think that anyone you know uh, anyone can understand that more than a survivor, right? Like what what that looks like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know feeling feeling supported. Um, I, I often say a shared experience can be a saved life. You know, and mm-hmm. and I think having the courage to be vulnerable, having the willingness to be vulnerable and share your own experiences, no matter how harmful or detrimental they can be, can literally be the difference of life and death for another person. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because when you're in a situation and, and, and you're dealing with, you know, trauma that still exists, that hopelessness is ever pervasive. Right. And so how do you break the cycle of feeling hopeless enough to even want to fight back, to even want to share your story, to even want to ask for help if you don't see anyone else around you doing it? Right. right? We can't we can't just keep it to ourselves uh, and then expect for everything to shift and change. So I live by the creed that a shared experience can be a saved life. And, you know, um, no matter what that looks like. Uh, I think we need to continue to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to flip that a little bit too, because um, I think that it's, it's always the parent's responsibility to create those safe spaces for their kids, right? To be able to come to them. 
Um, and I know that unfortunately, because of the culture that uh, we exist in, in the way that media portrays masculinity and um, expects a certain, uh, you know, way of, of uh, I'll say penis owners um, to act, right? Because, um, you know, what's in media and what, what music they're listening to, they, if they are survivors and, and they aren't seeing themselves as someone who can come out because it's, you know, people think it's just girls that are being abused. And uh, if someone of the same sex is the one who abused them, then there's a lot of shame around that. And what does that mean about my sexuality? And they, they're afraid of coming out about that. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what parents, what do you, what do you suggest parents can do to, um, you know, tell them like, it, it doesn't like, whatever happens, regardless of, you know, who does it or what happens, um, it's never your fault. And I know that that seems like a, a simplistic thing to say, but do you have any other advice for parents that um, they can, you know, help their, their youth, their, their kids to have more open conversations or to maybe dismantle this sort of toxic masculinity in their homes? I think, I think the biggest challenge for most parents is not being informed enough themselves, you know, and, mm -hmm. and also living based off of the stigmas that exist societally. You know, right. I, I know, I know a, a, a few guys that are incredible parents, you know, incredible fathers, and um, they are still uncomfortable about having conversations about their children's sexuality. So I think the healing has to start first with the parent and, you know, and be, because it's easy to tell a child or whomever, like, no matter what, I'll still love you. That sounds great, right? It looks mm -hmm. good on a Hallmark card, right? But love is an action word, right? And without, without the action of love, love is just an idea. Right. So, so it, unless we heal our own um, judgments and our own biases, um, and I'm saying our own because I'm speaking from the perspective of a parent, unless we heal those things within us, there's no way that we can offer a safe space for our children because we're going we're gonna to open up a door where they're going to trust and they're going to trust us with so much information and so much of themselves, right, and so much vulnerability that if we don't heal our own biases, we're not going to know how to deal with it and we'll end up causing more harm Right. Because that child then opened up and trusted, you know, and, and we didn't deal with it well. Right. So the first piece of advice I would I would I would say to any parent is, you know, understand your own biases, understand your own traumas, understand your own judgments. You know, um, I often ask a question like, you know, if a person is homophobic, why? Mm -hmm. Why are you homophobic? Why do we live in a society that tells us that transgender people's lives are less valuable than our own? And why do some people continue to subscribe to that mindset privately when they try to denounce it publicly? Right. So it's like we, we really need to, to, to get to this point of, you know, what's the saying? To thine own self be true, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and have those difficult, vulnerable conversations with ourselves first before we open up the door of opportunity because we want our children to trust us 
or because we don't want, no parent wants their kid to feel bad. Nobody wants their kid to suffer, right? But often, right, we, we are the ones perpetuating the pain. Right. Because right. of our own inability or unwillingness to, to heal from our own, right? So it has to start with yourself first, you know, and then you can then have the conversation. You know, there's experiences that you might have had as a parent that made you question your own sexuality. But until you've healed from that, you can't then offer that advice or offer conversation to a person that's in the same space. Right. Right. It'll be like, it'll be like two people, you know, it's, it's two people in the same space trying to do the complete opposite and you can't help one another in that way. You know, so I, I, th that would be my advice, like deal with, you know, heal your own um, traumas and, and, you know, and, and, and the ideals of difference and mm -hmm. what that looks like. Right. Talk to me about, because uh, I agree with all that you just said, and, and talk to me about what your healing journey was like when, when you decided to shift. Because like you said, I mean, you've dealt with all different aspects of, um, you know, doctors and like not getting the, the right support that you needed and then realizing that you had to kind of take that on yourself and figure it out. Can you tell me a little bit about what that journey was like? Because I think for a lot of parents who are survivors, um, you know, and I talk about this all the time where I'm like, we really, as we need to heal, we need to prioritize our healing in order to truly step into this, uh, you know, for, for what I do is I, you know, I obviously teach abuse prevention to parents who are survivors, but I'm always preaching about, you know, we have to do that inner work and heal. And for a lot of people, they're like, it just seems too scary. It seems like mm -hmm. something that is going to open up a lot more that's going to hurt. So what was your experience like when you stepped into your healing journey? And what would you recommend to those who haven't done that work yet and want to, but are afraid? I guess for me, I, my life went to an extreme, right? Like I, I tried to kill myself. You know, I, I don't think that there's any action that a person can have unto themselves that is more extreme mm. than the, the act of take of, of taking one's own life. You know, so for me, um, for me, I wasn't afraid anymore. There was nothing that anyone could say to me there was no memory that was too difficult. There was nothing more that could happen that could push me further than where I already was. Right. Um, and so at that point, you know, it's like when you hit rock bottom, there's no other place to go but up. Mm -hmm. Like you can't go further than that. The only thing that could have happened is the next time I would have gotten it right. You know? And for me, it was after that second suicide attempt, like I came to grips with the fact that even left to my own vices, I couldn't kill myself, right? Right, like the one thing that I felt like I had control over, right, I, I didn't. And so- You weren't meant point, to go, that's why. I, exactly, but, that, yeah. but, that, that, but that's what did it for me, you know, because I'm not so spiritually um, um, ignorant to believe that my life is just mine. Right. Like I, I, I understand and believe in a higher power. I believe in God. You know, I am saved. I was raised, you know, Catholic and 
you know, converted to Christianity and now more spiritual than religious, right? But I know that my life on this planet is not mine to keep. It's not mine to own, right? I'm like, my, my time here is leased. Right. You know, I will return to my own, you know, to the owner at some point. Um, and so at that moment, it was just like, God, you win. Like, what was the worst thing I had to ask myself, right? Like as anxiety sufferers or people who deal with anxiety, like we often go to the worst case scenario, right? And then that triggers an anxiety attack, which then triggers a panic attack. What was the worst case scenario for me to come to grips with the experiences that caused trauma in my life? Mm -hmm. What was the worst thing that could happen, right? The worst thing that could happen for me is that it would hurt again that it would make me cry, that I would become fearful, right? But with all of those things, the best case scenario is that I heal from them. Right. So then I am no longer in pain. So then I am no longer in fear, right? So when you can accept your worst case scenario and there's no worst case scenario, there's no scenario worse than wanting to take your own life. When you can come to grips with your worst case scenario, I think you can heal from anything. You can mm. push yourself past your perceived limitations, right? And then you can start to live in a space of possibility. Right. You know, and I think that's what it was for me. You know, I, I've, I've, I've lived in this skin my entire life. So I know what it's like to go out into the world and be perceived differently. I know the risks that I, I face every time I step behind the wheel of a car and I drive from one place to another. I know that risk. You know, mm -hmm. so if the, if the world is going to already limit me, right, and, and talk about my limitations and criticize my difference before they know anything about me, why am I going to then limit that for myself? Right. My personal belief is that I have one life to live. I have one, one of them. I don't, this is not a Nintendo game where I can hit the reset button, take out the, the video, <laughs> blow it, put it back in and try again with a cheat code. Yeah. I have one. If I live in a world of, uh, you know, of societal limitations, I'm not going to live one of personal limitations as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I encourage everyone who's struggling with the fear of, um, you know, of not facing your your triumph, uh, your your tra uh, your traumas, you know, and not and not healing from that. I challenge you to think about your worst case scenario, and as you think about your worst case scenario, write a list. Write a list of what those things are, right? But then write a list of the possibilities that come as a result of it, mm -hmm. right? Whether being a better parent, being a better partner, being a better spouse, being a better friend, being a better child, like whatever it is, being a better person, right? We often in, in, in this world, we talk so much about building great businesses, but how do we raise great people? That's the right. question. We have to raise great people by dealing with our own shit first. Sorry, I'm not sure if I can curse. That's okay. <laughs> it's all um, good. But amen but, to so, that. Yeah. So, so make a list, right? Make a list of the worst case scenario, then make a list of the best case scenario, right? And then you compare the two. Do a comparative analysis as we're talking about business, <laughs> right. right? Compare the two, right? And, and, and <clears throat> is the possibility of your worst, of your best case scenario greater than your fear of your worst? And if it is, take the step right do the yeah. work yeah because you, nobody can hurt you worse than you've already been hurt you've dealt with it before you've experienced it before you've already started the process of healing because you're still alive mm 
Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. that you've survived it, the fact that you are a survivor, you've already started the process. This episode is brought to you by Consent Parenting, my online platform for survivor parents to learn how to keep their kids safe from abuse. Did you know that children of survivor parents have a five times higher chance of being abused because survivor parents don't know or learn the tools needed to prevent abuse? They tend to overprotect instead of empower and prepare. You can change the statistics by becoming an educated parent. Get started by downloading my free guide, Seven Ways to Teach Your Kids About Body Safety, Boundaries, and Consent by going to aboutconsent.com forward slash guide. The link will be in the show notes to get your free copy today. Now let's get back to the show. Exactly. That's like cooking, it's like cooking a, a, a meal and then not sitting at the table and eating it. <laughs> That's a good, yeah, I like that analogy. I totally agree with you. And I think one of the things that um, I, I always stand behind is the idea that the fact that you have gone through so much and you're still standing is proof of how strong you are and that you have the capacity to go through this, you know, to cross that bridge to the other side, because, you know, I remember reading a book that talked about that analogy of like, you're on this side of the bridge and the bridge that you're about to cross looks really scary because you're unsure, but you can see what's on the other side and it looks amazing, but it's just this crossing of the bridge, right? That you have to do. And when you realize that you, you have the ability to walk across it, right? Because you're standing there and you, you can see what's on the other side, all you have to do is, is take that extra bit of courage, you know, which you do have, you just have to like tap into it um, to be able to do that. But I think one of, the, one of the pieces that I think is really important, and I think this is where your work is so powerful, is that for a lot of people who feel like they've been sitting in pain for so long, right? They, it's, it almost becomes like this chronic pain and it, it can be um, debilitating in terms of energy. Like it just feels like you just can't seem to get out of that. Um, and that's where they feel like I can't go any further. Like I can't give more than I already have given. I think that it's really important for them to realize that if they build more resilience through self-care, through that, those pieces of like anxiety management and um, you know, doing things that are going to um, help them develop and foster that resilience that they need to step into a healing journey. Um, I think that's where it's so important to have resources and people like yourself who are speaking about how to do that so that they can feel even more confident to be able to go into that. Because I think as parents, it's, it's our responsibility to heal those, you know, and to break those generational um, traumas that that we don't want to pass on to our kids, right? So can you talk to me about some of the other things that you do as well to help people, you know, build that resiliency and to, to help manage those, those pieces of anxiety or other, you know, um, things that they're going through to, to help them get to that, you know, that healing piece that they can finally step into? Absolutely. Uh, you'll you'll find throughout this conversation that I, I speak in analogies a lot, right? It drives my wife crazy. 
Um, <laughs> but I feel like it's the best way to, to drive the point across. I've always been told, um, you know, uh, you, you bless from your overflow, mm. right? Um, you know, so on a day-to-day basis, I often encourage people to find five things that they enjoy, right? Five things. I usually say three to five. But I'm going to say for the sake of this conversation, five things that you enjoy to do every day, every day. And if you think of like the well, a a water well, right. And every, each of these things is, is pouring fresh water into that well, right. If you do Mm. these things every day, eventually that well is going to overflow. Right. You know, so when you pull that thing up, you have more than enough water for yourself and the rest of your village. Right. And then if in worst case scenario, right, you don't you don't have enough for the person in the back. You can always dip it back in and grab some of that overflow so you can bless the people in the back. Mm -hmm. Find five things to do every day that are non-negotiable. I don't care what they are. They could be watching your favorite comedian tell the same joke over and over again. Mm -hmm. Kevin Hart has a joke about him going to the zoo with his kids and a gorilla slapping the the window and him running and forgetting the kids. I watch that (laughs) weekly. It's hilarious to me, right? It makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. That's a bucket going into my well, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I'm, I'm in my garden. I love to get my hands in dirt. And funny thing about it, like, I have allergies. I have seasonal allergies. I never like to be outside. I don't like bugs. You know, I, you know, like I just, I was never that guy, but I spend more time in my garden than I do in my bedroom. You know, that's a non-negotiable for me, right? Mm -hmm. It's another bucket going into my well. I I, I have a, a, a tea ritual that I do every morning. So every morning, my wife and I, we make a cup of tea and we enjoy a cup of tea together every day. That's another bucket that's going into my well, right? Then we read a book together. You know, I'm huge into interior design. I love interior design. So we'll either read a book on interior design, we'll grab a Better Homes and Garden magazine, or we'll sit down and watch a HGTV show for an hour. That's another bucket going into my well. These are non-negotiables. There's mm-hmm. nothing that can distract me from it. There's nothing that's going to take me away from it. I, I have to protect myself and my own sanity if I ever want to be able to do the same for my children. I have to lead by example. My children aren't. I grew up with, my, with, with, with people telling me, do as I say and not as I do. And I was challenged with that because I'm like, that sounds like hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Right. I, like I can't Absolutely. live my life. I can't live my life in that. Right. So it's like I have to lead by example. My children are going to follow behind what they see me do, not what they hear me say. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have to create these boundaries even from them. Right. When I go out in my garden first thing in the morning, my kids don't I have a house full of five kids. They don't come outside with me. It'll be two thirty if I'm sitting outside in the garden chilling. Like they, they might creep, peep their head at my son did it the other day. I was like, Hey, everything. All right. You straight. You good. Can I come out? I just want to chill with you for a little bit. But if he sees me out there at nine fifteen in the morning, he's not coming out there right. unless it's an emergency. You know what I mean? Because I create boundaries for my children. I create boundaries for my wife. I create boundaries for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have to be strong enough and willing enough to love myself enough to create these systems for me. Because only when I am my best self 
can I then show up as the as my best self for everybody else? I can only then bless you from a full well. I can only mm-hmm. bless you from my overflow. If I only have this much water in my well and you're dying of thirst, sorry, I can't do anything but wet your palate. You yeah. know what I mean? And then yeah. go ask somebody else if they have some 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 water. You know, <laughs> so it's like you you have to take those moments of finding five things that are non-negotiable for you every single day. And if five is too difficult, do three. Mm-hmm. Nothing less than three every single day. And eventually you will build up the reserves to find that level of redemption that you need for your life. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, this really comes down to valuing yourself, which I know is, again, another thing that survivors tend to struggle with is being able to see themselves as valuable enough for that self-care, you know, for Mm -hmm. those, those pieces that are going to help them. And you have to like make that decision and take that stance that you are going to prioritize, you know, and, and something that I talk about when I share my story is that I kept running away from doing that work because it was triggering and it was scary. And when I had my kids, I, I came to realize that, I had to prioritize my healing. Like I had, I, I, I made a decision to, to decide that this was something I needed to do in order to teach my kids what they needed to know to be safer because, uh, you know, having the experience with my own family and my mom being a survivor and not knowing how to talk to us and being triggered herself by things, but ultimately not equipping us with the information we needed to make uh, decisions like being able to report or to be able to tell someone and all those little things like it can be detrimental, not just for ourselves, but for the, the, you know, children that we care for. So I just want to reiterate how important it is for those listening that if you're feeling like you know that you need that, that help to heal um, and you're just afraid that that, you know, these are amazing recommendations is to take, you know, serious your own healing, starting with that self-care. And the way that you have to do that is realizing that you are valuable, you are worthy of that healing, and you are worthy of of prioritizing yourself with boundaries. And I think boundaries are also something that's a little bit hard for survivors to know how to implement if they never really were able to before. Um, I wonder if that's also something that is um, based on how we're raised because of our gender. Like for women, it's not as easy to feel that they can set boundaries. Um, but that, that also brings me to the next point that I wanted to talk to you about, which is how we as a culture also don't look at um, the at boys as having um, higher risk factors, you know, than girls when it comes to abuse. And um, can you talk a little bit about what you see in terms of how that plays out in uh, communities of color, if that's even a factor, or is it just something in general, I think, culturally across the board that we are not paying enough attention to that and and not um, protecting boys as much or enough? Uh, What is your opinion on that? I, I definitely feel like um, we are not protecting our boys enough. You know, I think that there's a huge misconception um, in the risks 
of of boys being victims uh, of of abuse. Um, and I think that there's a huge misconception because of the societal standard of what masculinity is and what it means, right? And that mm-hmm. um, if a if a if a 14 year old boy, what what did you call him, penis owner, uh, <laughs> is a <laughs> I'm going to use that in some conversation randomly. <laughs> um, you know, if if he's touched inappropriately by a girl and wants to report it, then he's 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 called out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I've personally experienced that. I've had, you know, females wanting to offer sexual favors and I turn it down and was then called gay. It's like okay, mm-hmm. I'll be that. Like that's that's fine. It's still not gonna get me. You're still not gonna get what you want from me. Yeah. But I think that the challenge of this this toxic mass this culture of toxic masculinity, which I also think is a is a is a is a system that was put in place um, by dominant culture um, to hide their own insecurities. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, just because boys are supposed to be tough and supposed to said to be you know tough and said to be um rugged and said to be aggressive and said to be these things uh and they've been forced to show it externally doesn't mean that that's who they are right um it's who they it's who they've chosen to be you know, it's who they they felt like they needed to be for survival. Mm-hmm. And generally what happens, you know, um, in, in, in a lot of instances is that same level of masculinity can be challenged by someone that is even more masculine, which, which could then result in sexual abuse. Let me show you how tough you're not, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so I think these things, you know, even for, for children, you know, the experimentation, one of the things that I, I recently talked to a therapist about this, you know, um, in general conversation, you know, one of the things that happens a lot in, in communities of color is that, you know, boys touch other boys um, to experiment, you know, and the one party that's experimenting is causing trauma to the other party, but the other party doesn't know that it's wrong it just doesn't feel okay right and then they're shamed into not talking about it right for the same reasons that i just spoke about you Mm -hmm. know so i think the reason why there's a big misconception is because there aren't enough people talking about it you know um and i and i think if we if we spoke about it more if we worked to shatter this idea of what it is to be male to be masculine to be whatever um you know then i think i think we would open the door of opportunity for more boys to find strength and vulnerability as opposed to looking at vulnerability to be weakness right you know and i think for myself that's one of the things that i believed growing up like if i'm vulnerable then i'll i'll show them my weakness i'll show them my weak points I will show them what they can then use against me. Mm. And so I have to safeguard and protect myself from showing people 
you know, what they can use against me. It's like you see it in movies all the time of like, you know, people in, you know, working for like secret, top secret missions. And they're like, oh, if, you know, I, you can, I can never tell you who my wife is because if you know who my wife is, then you can get to her to get to me, right? right? Like that's vulnerability, right? Right. To, to society. That's what yeah. they believe vulnerability is. Vulnerability is not that though. Right. Right. Like vulnerability is actually strength. Vulnerability is humanity. Vulnerability is human connection and experience. Yeah. Right. Vulnerability is love and action. Right? It's courageous. So it's courageous, as Brene Brown would say. Right. It, it's like, vulnerability is courage. You have to be courageous enough to be vulnerable. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan now. That's <laughs> why, you know. So, you know, I think. Yeah, I, think, I agree. I think, you know, we are not protecting our boys enough. Uh, and we are failing our boys because we're giving them wrong information, right? We're, we're, we're telling them the complete opposite. Uh, and we are, we are taking away their lived experience. We're taking away their human right to feel, right? And we're masking it with giving them permission to be angry, mm -hmm. right? And then not showing them what to do with anger. Because even anger as an, I don't even look at anger as an emotion as much as I look at anger as an energy. Right. And so we're not teaching our boys how then to deal with that anger in a productive, constructive way. Right. And because then we, we criticize and chastise and demonize and, you know, for them not acting, it, not displaying their anger in a way that's not, you know, destructive. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's like a, you're it's damned a, if you do and you're damned if you don't. So I'd rather just not. Right. It's yeah. easier to, to don't than to do. Right. So yeah. I'd rather just don't. <laughs> I know that doesn't make sense, you know, in English language, but like the reality is like, I would rather not. And I think that's where the failure comes in, you know, right. because we're from generation to generation. I mean, if we can go back to slavery, you have, you know, black male slaves that were raped in front of their family by their white male masters. Yeah. Right. For, for the for the purpose of power and control and dehumanization. Right. And then we've taken those same men who then be, 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 they feel as though they are no longer, um, they no longer have the ability to protect their wives and their families and they're shamed, right? And now they escape and they separate themselves from that family structure and dynamic. But then that fear, right? That hurt, that trauma, that pain, right? When challenged, they then pass that on to someone else who right. generally looks like them because they haven't dealt with and processed it. And it happens from generation to generation to generation, you know? Um, and so I, I, I think now is the time. I mean, we're, we're way past the time to start having these dialogues and conversations, right? And changing and shifting this idea of what masculinity looks like and what it is and what vulnerability looks like and what it is. Absolutely. And I think until we do that, we're going to continue to see these issues exist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I, you know, I, I have three, three boys myself, three penis owners <laughs> that <laughs> I'm raising. Um, and it, it's always something that's on the forefront of my mind because I want them to be able to be in touch with all aspects of themselves, right? Not to right. Um, just think that they have to be one way. And it, interestingly enough, my husband, um, who grew up in a very um, like it's a, this is a gold mining community. Like there's gold mines in this, in this city. And um, it's, you know, the, the sort of dominant perception of what masculinity is, is this very 
strong, rough, like you don't show emotions. Um, I know some of the friends that, that he grew up with and you can see how, you know, they, you can't show any kind of weakness or you're not going to be considered manly enough. Right. And so um, I know that because when you grow up that way, a lot of it just becomes automatic in your own behavior and you don't realize that you're passing on things like we have to be really conscious um, as parents, you know, even the way I grew up, like, you know, with what I saw, you know, with the male figures in my life was that it was, you know, you had to be really sort of tough. And especially because of the way that the kind of neighborhoods that I grew up in and those, the, you know, spaces where you had to be tough in order to survive your environment um, that, that it's really hard for parents, I think, to like, let go of that upbringing and that cultural like mindset to be able to challenge it and then talk to kids. And and particularly, I think it's, it's important to, to talk to all genders about this, right? Not just boys, not just girls, um, but to really break open the, these concepts and like really examine them as, as parents specifically. And like, how do we talk to our kids about that? Like what kind of conversations can we have that really get them to be critically thinking um, and then to be supported, right? Because we can say, we can tell our kids like, you know, be, be open and, and you know, uh, develop all aspects of yourself, but then they go to school and they're challenged in those ways. Like, what can we do is at home to support that? Like, is it just ongoing conversations? Is it, you know, leading by example, like you mentioned, like, what do you do in your home to set that example? Yeah, I think I think the the difference between ordinary and extraordinary starts at home. Mm. You know, for for any child, right? Like we're all born with the the capability of being extraordinary, um, and we only we only match that capability when we're pushed to become that, right? But if we if we live in a if we live in a in a household or a, a community of complacency and accepting average as great, then we will become average. We will become Mm. ordinary. Um, And so I think it takes an extraordinary parent to have an honest dialogue with their child. So often we are so afraid of hurting our child's feelings, right? Like, Like feelings don't have to be the most fragile aspect of our human experience. Mm-hmm. If your feelings get hurt, it may not have been the intention, but the best case scenario is that you get over it, right? right? And, you, and you find resilience and understanding in those feelings. It's not mm-hmm. about your feelings are hurt, you're horrible. It's about, okay, if this hurt your feelings or this made you feel uncomfortable, well, this triggered you in some kind of way and it triggered some kind of an emotion, understanding and identifying why, right? So then we can adjust and address the underlying cause. And so, you know, I think so often parents, we like to protect our children from the inevitable. You yeah. know, we want to protect our children from so much. It's like, you know, if, if you have a newborn in there, well, not a newborn, if you have a toddler and they're learning to walk, 
are you going to let them fall? Or are you going to be there every time they take their first few steps and catch them when they lose balance? You know, like, and I think we have to do that even as our kids get older, we can, we can try to minimize, you know, like if, if your child has some skates and you, you know, ride a bike and you want to put a helmet on them and, you know, some shoulder pads and some knee pads and all of that, like that can help minimize the damage of the impact of the impending fall. Mm-hmm. But you can't prevent the fall. Right. They have to experience the fall in order to know to no longer be afraid of it. Right. Like, oh, sh- I fell. That's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Right. So now I'll take more risks. I'll, I'll, I'll ride my bike a little bit faster, right? I'll, I'll go a little bit further because I no longer am afraid of the fall, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's, I, I think that's what we need to do in our households as far as having these conversations with our children we can't want to safeguard them so much that we give them a false idea of what reality looks like. We have to just prepare them for the fall and be there when they do to help them get up, but to no longer fear the fall at all. You know, and so I don't shy away from having difficult conversations with my children. I am as, I am as brutally honest as they come. Right. Like, I'm, you know, like I just want to high five you from the screen because I'm the same. I'm like, totally. Yeah, I I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I had one son. He, you know, he wanted to play basketball and he wasn't that good at it. And so instead of me being like, yes, you'll be the next Stephen Carey. It's like you're great at drawing. Why don't you try that? You know, it's like I'm just, you know, like I'm going to have the not saying that you shouldn't play. Like, let's play. Let's do it. Like, let's do it all. But like. I don't want you to believe that you exist on this level. Like this is your gift. It's not your gift. Right. But I can't be so afraid of hurting your feelings that I lie to you and, 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 and force you to believe this false truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that about my own experiences and I'm not going to shy away from talking about the world's experiences and the experiences of people that I know and the realities of what can happen. Right. This isn't to frighten you into the point of not wanting to live life, but it's to give you enough wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Enough information so that when you step out into the world, you know what to look for. You know how to navigate your way through this rough terrain because that's all life is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what does that conversation then for you look like when we're talking about toxic masculinity in a, in the home where maybe that's, you know, what they're seeing all around them or the kind of media that they're consuming? Like, what does that look like for you? Uh, like, could you give me an example just to make it more tangible for, for those listening? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, my son is big into rap music you know, as I was, you know, and he has certain artists that he loves and adores and thinks is, you know, incredible. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm great that uh, I love that you love their music. Did you know that this person graduated from college with a four year degree in medical science? So when you mm-hmm. listen to them talk about I'm in the trap and I'm selling drugs and I'm, I'm shooting guns and I'm doing all I'm doing all this. Like, did you know that this person actually went to a HBCU? and has a degree and has an education like this, you know, like 
and, and I compare it to like acting, like, you know, Denzel Washington played in Fences and he was incredible, but he also played in Training Day and was a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so the, these individuals that you are seeing are portraying a role. Right. You know, they're not necessarily who you think they are. Right. So, yeah. you know, I take my sons, we go get manicures and pedicures together, you know, before COVID. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, I'm not afraid to cry in front of my kids. You know, yeah. my, my, my kid will get emotional. My sons will get emotional and they'll try to like suck it up. Like, you know, I'm not going to cry. It's like, fam, you can lay your head on my shoulder, bro. Like, it's mm. okay. Like yeah. this shit that tears coming out of your eyes does not change who you are as a person. It doesn't mm-hmm. make you weak. It makes you human. Right. And I think we've been forgetting to give ourselves permission to be human because before we are man, woman, before we are black, white, before we are any of those things, we are first human. Mm-hmm. We've all mm-hmm. developed the same way. We all breathe the same air. We all need the same things in order to survive, right? Yes. So it's everything else that's on the outside that is what segregates us. But if we strip all of that away and we just focus on who we truly are, the fabric of our character, right, is also the cloth of our humanity, then we can start seeing life in a completely different way. Yes. So like, yeah, I go get massages. I get manis and petties. It's comfortable. It's relaxing. I enjoy mm-hmm. it, you know? And that doesn't make me less of a man. I'm in a, I live in a household with five children and I work diligently with my wife to become a better version of myself and so, so we can work together to become great parents. I don't think there's anything more masculine than that. Yeah, I agree. Right. So, so just because I'm not going out back and I'm not chopping the wood, you won't see me on an episode of Naked and Afraid, right? <laughs> you don't see me killing the ox and skinning the deer. That doesn't mean that I'm not a man. It means that I'm not, I am not willing to abide by the societal standards that have been set forth for me in the one life that I have. I'm going to determine what that looks like for myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the that. freedom of that's the freedom of my humanity. I love that. Yeah, and I just to come back to what you said before, um, which really resonates with me too. We tend to um, try to like be in this one, you know, to fit these roles that you know we unconsciously pick up, and when we don't make that that conscious choice and realize this is our one life. Like, do you really want to live it by the standards of others? Or do you want to really live your life by the beauty of what you create for yourself and those you love? Right. So I, I completely agree with that above all, it's like, we have this one life, you know, so what we choose to do with that and how we, choose to live that life as an example, even for our children, right? Not that we have to like live a certain way for them, but the, the more that we can live a rich, full, healthy, robust, you know, uh, life, the, the more that we are giving that, all, that gift to our children, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's really um, powerful in, in, in helping us to motivate us, I guess, to, to do the healing that we need to do and to, um, you know, dismantle 
the belief systems that are actually oppressing us, right? So I, I love that so much. Yeah. Thank well, you. I mean, we could be talking for hours about all this stuff and, and there's yeah. so many more things that I want to dive into, but um, I think that was a really great starting point for some of the conversations that I think are so important for uh, communities of color to be having regardless of gender, um, particularly if they're parents, particularly if they're survivors. Um, if, you're, if you're listening to this and this resonated with you, I think it's because there is a calling and you're meant to be listening to this. Um, because there's a calling for you to to heal and to uh, empower your yourself and your family um, by doing the things that, uh, like I said, are going to dismantle those oppressive systems, but it has to start with us first, right? We are the ones that person by person, and I always say, like, my mission is to eradicate child sexual abuse, but we can only do that one family at a time, right? And so if we... Um, really take our own healing um, and dedicate ourselves and really take it seriously. I think that there's so much power for us to change culture through our own experiences um, and how we can empower others once we empower ourselves. So 100%. thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't touch on? And, uh, and then I also wanna ask you how people can connect with your work. I think we, I think we touched on a lot, you know, I, I in this present moment, I, I don't think that there's anything that I can think of that we haven't talked about um, or that we won't uh, talk about in the future, in the near future, um, which I'm excited for. Um, people can reach out to me, Quentin Vinny everywhere. You go to my website, quintinvinny.com. Uh, Instagram is probably the most communicative I am. Uh, on any network. Uh, so is Quentin Vinny on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm the same. <laughs> I don't care to know what it is. So you won't see me TikToking anywhere. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to connecting and uh, continuing to be in dialogue and, and communion. So thank you for the, the blessing and privilege of conversation and, and being in this space. I really appreciate you and your work. Uh, in the space you've created. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Well, and we definitely are going to uh, be talking about gardening in some way, shape or form, because I yeah. think we both have a passion for it. Um, and, and I think that that's also another um, really piece about social justice also, right? That I think uh, a lot of um, a lot of people are, are, are missing. Um, and especially now, I think, especially now, it's such an important conversation. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to having uh, a conversation about that soon too. So definitely for those listening, stay tuned and um, definitely connect on Instagram. You can follow um, the journey of gardening amongst many other uh, topics that you talk about on your platform. So I will definitely link all of that in the show notes. And if you um, have watched this uh, either on Facebook or YouTube or you're listening um, through any of the podcast platforms that this is distributed on, please screenshot it and share it with us on Instagram. We would love to know what your best takeaways were, what inspired you, what did you learn, what was something that you're going to take from this and put into action in your life because I'm all about action. I don't like to just talk. I want to see, you know, how we can utilize that information and transform our lives. So please do tag us and let us know uh, what you took away from this and um, 
stay connected. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you in the next podcast. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture, one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.